0: Amen. All right. well, good morning. If you have your Bibles, uh, then you'll need to turn to Habakkuk, chapter 2. That is the 35th book in the Bible. So if you start at the end of the uh, Old Testament with Malachi and go back a few, you will find it faster than trying to find it a different way. It is a real book in the Bible. Um, And if you don't have a Bible, we've got Bibles in the back. Feel free to grab one. And uh, there's study guides in the back. That uh, went over five weeks, and so uh, if you haven't seen one of those, there's still a couple left, and they might be good for, for future reference and future study. But um, happy resurrection. The tomb is still empty, and I get bothered a little bit because it seems like we only discussed the resurrection on Easter when it should be something that we point to and talk about all the time, every day. So, so happy resurrection. Before uh, we kind of took a break for Easter, we spent... Uh, about three weeks in this ever-popular book uh, called Habakkuk. And so today we're returning to uh, really eavesdrop on a conversation between God and a guy named Habakkuk, who is one of his prophets. And other than knowing that, or thinking actually, there's a bit of dispute that his name means embrace. There really isn't much known about This guy named Habakkuk. And what he writes doesn't really make you feel all snuggly, cuddly, and huggy, as his name might portray. Um, He's a prophet that wrote about 2,500 years ago. And it's uh, shortly before the fall of Jerusalem to a group of people called the uh, Babylonians. uh, They're also called the Chaldeans in the Bible, uh, but it's the Babylonians. And it's a time uh, before this fall, where Habakkuk is is looking at his own people, living in Jerusalem, and he sees that the city and his people are ignoring God's law completely, and they are completely perverting justice and basically hurting one another. And he is completely overwhelmed by the sin that he sees. It probably is similar to us. If you turn on the TV, look on the Internet, read the newspaper, you get... Pretty quickly disgusted with the amount of brokenness that we're surrounded by. And a lot of times, if you are a Christian, it's a bunch of Christians that are doing some of that brokenness. And you throw your hands up and you go, What is going on? And Habakkuk is in that same place. And so he's confused, though, because God is seemingly silent. He's not doing anything to stop this or to punish this or to hinder it. And Instead of constantly just complaining and being bitter and drawing away from God, he draws near to God and he goes and he prays. And he prays what amounts to a really tear-filled complaint. And his complaint is, how long, God, are you going to ignore evil and allow destruction to reign? Which is a very good question that if you've never asked God, I'd wonder what you're looking at in our world, because it's pretty broken. And so he asked this question, and he's prayed before, it seems, because he's like, how long, how long? And so he's prayed before, and he hasn't had you know, so much as a whisper from God up to this point. And this time God responds with a very loud voice, and it disturbs Habakkuk completely. Not the voice, but what actually the words that he says and in the first verse of this book, it says the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. And the word oracle can also mean the word burden. It's a good description of this book because for all intents and purposes, this is a heavy, heavy burden that Habakkuk probably could have or would have chosen not to have to carry if you look at the words that he writes. And so he gives him a very, God gives him a very hard answer. And he tells Habakkuk, uh, what's going to happen, kind of gives him a behind-the-scenes look of, of how this is all going to play out, which he does occasionally um, to some of his prophets. And in chapter 1, verse 4, God basically says, I am doing something, and I hesitate to tell you because you're not going to believe it. You wouldn't believe it if I told you what was going to happen. And so he proceeds to tell him anyway, and Habakkuk is... Imagine his jaw dropping as God tells him that he's going to raise up this godless, ruthless, militant Babylonian army to punish his own people. And if you don't, it's hard to understand or comprehend exactly how brutal these people were. If you, uh, if you reference back to the second sermon I preached, I gave some insight into what, who these Babylonians were like. These are the slimeball, ruthless, murderous, terrible people you can possibly imagine that did horrific things. And God says, yeah, I'm going to use them. I'm going to raise them up and punish my people. And Habakkuk is uh, a little more than disturbed at God's plan. And he is even more disturbed than he was with Judah's sin that he saw and he was complaining about. And so he complains to God a second time, this time about his plan. And he says, uh, you know, how can you, how can you, these sinful, terrible, horrific Babylonians, I mean, I know Israel, Israel's pretty bad, but not that bad. And he plays this compare game that I, I preached on right before Easter that we all play, telling God it's unfair, ignoring our own sin and complaining about everyone else's, basically. And as he complains, though, this is the beauty of this complaint. As he complains, as he struggles with circumstances he doesn't like, which we have all experienced and, and questions God basically about the way he's doing things, these unbelievable ways that God seems to work. He does so not with his, with his fists, you know, like this and like, Argh! he does so, I think, with his arms open from what amounts to a foundation of trust in who God is. That's where he's asking this question from. And he basically says, I know, this is how he starts, and we, we preached about this And uh, as we started his complaint the last time, which is, I know that God is eternal. This is how he starts. I know God is eternal. I know you're eternal, God, that you know all things. You see all things outside of time, how it goes, what happened, you see it all. I know that you are personal, God, that you love me. I know that you've made promises. I know you love me. I know, God, that you are holy that you are sinless, that there is no evil in you, that you are perfectly pure and perfectly good and perfectly just in all of your ways. I just don't like this. It feels unfair. And he asks him, will these Babylonians that you're going to raise up, will they not be judged for what they do and for what they've done? Are you just going to let them go forever? And so... Habakkuk sits back and he says, I'm going to go in the watchtower and wait for your response, God. And this is where we pick it up. And this time, God responds and he tells him to write down what he's about to say. What he's about to see and say. He's like, write this down so that we, not Habakkuk, so that we remember it. Because we all have Habakkuk life stories. Where something happens that we don't like, we didn't expect, that disturbs us, even if we know God is actually working in it, doing it. We don't like it. So it's written down for us. And what he promises to is that judgment is going to come on all sin. God will judge all sin. Now or in the future. That should sober all of us. There is nothing that God misses. And we like to talk to people that may be living in sin and go, well, you're going to get it. The truth is, God will judge all sin, especially yours. And maybe that's where we should spend most of our time. God will not dismiss sin. He will not ignore sin. Judgment will come. And he tells Habakkuk this. And he says, and even if it's delayed, even if it seems slow, it's going to come. It's going to come. And then he proceeds to record in chapter 2, what we'll spend time on. God's lengthy judgment. This is what it's going to look like. This is what's going to happen. And he says about this sinful king, beginning in chapter 2, verse 4. This is where we ended the last sermon. He says, behold, talking about this king. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. But the righteous, little caveat, but the righteous shall live by faith. And then he continues talking about the king. He says, moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as white as Sheol. Like death, he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. Shall not these, verse 6, take up their taunts against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say? And the rest is what he says. And what you see in verse 4 and 5 is he begins with this description. He sets the stage and he contrasts two ways of living. One is the life of faith. The righteous life of faith where God's right, your rightness with God is based on your faith in God. That's one way of life. And the other path that he's going to describe is the life of unbelief and unrighteousness believing you can be right with God by your own work and your own power and your own whatever, though it ends up you are not ever right with God. One is a life that trusts in God in all things, and the other is trust in yourself for all things. One life is a life that depends on God, depends on Him for His power to work in all things, and one is a life that depends on On our own work. One is characterized by humility. Characterized by it. Governed by humility and service to others. One is characterized by pride and the use of others. One life is a slave to God. One life is a slave to sin. One life is one that loves and cares and gives to others. And one is a life that ignores, uses, and only takes from others. One life is a life of self-denial, like Jesus, pursuing the glory of God in all things, and the other is a life that is self-absorbed, self-seeking, self-serving, and self-glorifying. And there are only two options that exist. So you today live one of these options. You may live one not very good, but the truth is you live on one of these two paths because there isn't a third path. And so he's going to describe this life for the second path, if you will, the way of unbelief in verses 5 through 20. It says, this is what the life of faith in myself, not faith in God, looks like. And what you see is a description of judgment for people who do not live as if they need God, want God, or all the above. And there are two important things to remember. okay? Because otherwise, all of you and myself will believe that, yeah, let's talk about the sinful people. And you'll separate yourself from believing that this is actually talking about you. First and foremost, the Babylonians are judged not because they're Babylonians. They are judged because they are sinners. Leading a sinful nation. And... They don't worship the one true God. Mind you, Israel at this time is being judged through these sinful people. But we can't just believe the Babylonians, or oh, those big bad Babylonians over there. I think one of the quotes I had in my previous sermon was, you are the Babylonians, and I am. But secondly, anytime, time, this is what I actually believe in, we don't read the Bible this way, any time God makes a judgment on sin, where it's clear he's judging, saying this is wrong, this is bad, this is going to cause death in your life, if if that is so obvious. And especially when the guy is told to write it down. Okay? It's kind of a clue. The obvious bad guy, the Babylonians in this case, is not the only one God wants to hear it. Catch that? The judgment he declares isn't like, yeah, go get him, God. It's like, no, listen very carefully to what I say, lest you fall into judgment yourself. So we should listen and learn. And so in this judgment, we're all warned in a song. It's called the taunt song. And I don't make this up. It's actually a taunt song. That's why they say in verse 6, they'll take up their taunt. And it says, shall not these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him? There are two songs in Habakkuk. This is one of them. It lasts from verse 5 to verse 20. The second song is all of chapter 3. And one song is about faith, and one song is about faithlessness. And though you may not sing in church, although I thought it sounded pretty good today, okay, right? you may not sing in church, your life sings one of these two songs. One of them. And it's either a song of faith or it's a song of faithlessness. And everyone can hear it, especially God, which is sobering. But the taunt song is the kind of song that a once oppressed people would sing to their former oppressors, literally. And it's a song really of, about the faithlessness of a people. And there are five woes in the next five verses, Right? So you see, like, woe to this, woe to this. Well, it's a song with five different stanzas. And each stanza begins with this woe. And each stanza shows the misery of a person or a nation that thinks it can do it without God. Thinks it can live without God. And what happens when you do. And so before the song even begins, back in verse 4 and 5, God gives kind of a title to the song that I kind of like. He calls... The king, if you will, he says his soul is puffed up. So I just titled the song "The Puffed Up One." Okay, the puffed up one, and it's been the number one song on God's kind of top forty probably since about Genesis chapter three. Okay, most people and the majority of people that have lived in this existence sing this song, and the Babylonian king will will call him puffy. Is prideful and arrogant and never at rest. Okay? He is arrogant and never at rest. And Puppy is so unconcerned with anything but greed. That's what he's so focused on. Coveting what everyone else has because he isn't content. And he constantly pursues it. Here's how he describes in those first couple of verses in 4 and 5. He He pursues whatever he wants like a drunk does wine. And believing that the next drink is going to satisfy, but it never does. In fact, if there was going to be a subheading for the title, maybe the puffed up one is the album, and the subheading is puffy, mouth open as wide as hell, and still not satisfied. That's pretty much what it says. The heart of every sin that we commit, whether it be your little white lie you want to talk about or murder, if that's the extreme you can go to. The heart of every sin as it was in Eden is believing that you can find satisfaction in creation instead of the creator. And it bleeds into all aspects of life, which you'll see is built up in the song as it goes through all aspects of life what happens to someone who's faithless. First stanza of the song goes like this. Chapter verse 7. Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. For how long? And loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those who wake will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them because you have plundered many nations. All the remnant of the people shall plunder you for the blood of man and the violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. Sin destroys our relationship with ourselves. I know it sounds like psychobabble, but it's true. So we try to build our lives apart or without faith. What's that look like? Well, we don't know who we are. We're confused many times. Sin confuses us. We are are supposed to be these creatures that worship God, that depend upon God, but we're confused a little bit about our identity, and we desperately seek to find it, and we find it in a lot of creative ways. The Babylonians decided that they were what you were, whatever they saw, and they took whatever was a delight to their eyes. And conquest after conquest, this is how the Babylonians worked, they loaded themselves up with more stuff than anyone could ever want taking what they wanted, when they wanted it, from whom they wanted it, period. And they didn't deny themselves any pleasure that they wanted, regardless of who it hurt, directly or indirectly. And the truth is, when we try to build a life without faith, a life that doesn't trust God to be content in all things, we too, and it's very obvious, it's been obvious in my life in the past, we get obsessively concerned with making ourselves a little bit richer, a little more successful, a little more admired, whatever it happens to be, just a little more happy through this. Fill in the blank. And the truth is, it's because we're unsure of actually who we are, of our identity. And the highlights of the year of the faithless person becomes getting the promotion. That's the greatest thing that could happen getting the new house, getting the 50-inch TV, getting the wife, if you're not married, or husband, launching the career, those become the, the goals, the objective, the success or lack thereof in your life. Whether you are excited or despairing. And even more than that, we become, I think, enslaved to it. Enslaved to obtaining whatever it is you need or think you need. And you begin to worship stuff. And y'all have... Y'all, where does that come from? There is some cowboy... Probably because I'm so bow-legged. There's a cowboy in me somewhere. So I don't know where that comes from. But the truth is, we worship stuff, and I can prove it because you all, everyone has a very consistent tithing record to the Church of Visa. Okay, Very consistent. The Church of Visa has the most and largest number of people in it. And great givers to it. And you have a record of sacrificial service of your time and your energy for that thing that's not God. We're very similar in our discontent. And so here's the judgment that God speaks on it. He basically says, you're going to reap what you sow. That sounds familiar, like Jesus might have said that. You're going to reap what you sow. When you are concerned, honestly, with you and your name, with making much of yourself, whatever that looks like, just like the Babylonians, you will become a person who takes and never gives anything to anyone. You will heap and you will never share. At their core, the faithless do not believe the gospel. They don't believe in a God who shows us the very heart of Himself is to be a servant who gave everything away. That's where the faithlessness is. Proverbs 11.24, I just read this this morning, says this. And try to get away from the idea of just giving money. Just think about the concept of giving, period. Of yourself, your time, your energy, your resources, your love—anything. It says, "One gives freely, yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give, and only suffers want." Verse twenty-five: Whoever brings blessing will be enriched, and one who waters will himself, one who and one who waters will himself be watered. You will reap what you sow, and that's exactly what he says. It's happening to the Babylonians. It's going to come back to bite you. All the stuff you've taken, now people will take from you. Galatians 6 says it this way. Sobering verse. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. He could have said that to Habakkuk. Look, at, they're taking whatever they want, God, don't be deceived. God's not mocked. For whoever or whatever one sows, that he will also reap. For the one who sows to his flesh will from flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. God is not deceived by your fake faith. He's not. And in fact, the world isn't either. Everyone sees it. There are too many of us, and I have been personally convicted by this, who say that we love Jesus but we don't really live very different than the rest of the world. There isn't much distinction. The world says they hate Him and we love Him, but I'm not sure that anyone can tell the difference. That's the first stanza of the song. Second stanza, verse 9. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house! to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life, for the stone will cry out from the wall, and the beam from the woodwork respond. Your sin is never private. Never. It will bleed into your home. Sin destroys, I believe, our relationship, basically our natural tendency to love with our family. And so we often build homes, and I'm going to beat on you guys a little bit, especially, we often build homes without faith, without a foundation of faith. Now the Babylonians are compared to these eagles who build nests up high and so they can be safe from harm. And their security for the Babylonians is, and their peace really and their hope is found in the perfect tree, that they put their perfectly built nest into. And their security ultimately is in their own work. And if it fails, then it's their own fault. And God really has nothing to do with it. And we do the exact same thing. We concern ourselves with our own security. We put all kinds of time and energy and resources into building a fortress around our families, For both comfort and protection. It reminds me of when I have uh, counseling opportunities for married couples. And they put years, not all, but some put years of time meditating on, saving money up for their wedding. Making it beautiful and perfect in every way. And you sit down with them you start talking about marriage and maybe they'll get three sessions in with you. That's the value. Their security is out of whack. They're more excited about, you know, the comfort and the protection and building something and not starting with the right building things. It'd be better for you to put all that time and energy into your marriage and what that relationship's gonna look like and forget the wedding. Go get married in a backyard. I've done that. When we decide. To put all kinds of energy into a fortress for our families. We'll put little time and energy and resources into building a home that's rooted in the faith of God. The truth is, without God at the center of your home, you are not safe and you are not secure. No matter how much security you have. And you have to ask yourselves, verse 11 is a powerful verse for me. Verse 11 says, For the stone will cry out from the wall, and the beam from the woodwork respond. And here's the question I asked myself as I was studying for this. If my walls could talk, if my walls could say something, what would they say about my faith in God? Really? And I've asked men this a lot. It's like, when was the last time you talked about Jesus in your home? Is it really a foundation of faith Well, we're Christian? Really? What does that look like on a daily basis in your home? Do your kids know? Well, they grow up believing, man, things got rough, things got tough, but we always had God. You remember when this happened, and we don't know how we were going to pay bills, but I knew, I saw dad, man, that guy talked about faith in God. Is that what it looks like? Because if not, you're faithless. And it's going to impact your home. And the judgment, he says, for building a home without faith is shame. It's shame. The Babylonians built their home through evil plundering of others. And we don't do that exactly, but catch this. This is, this is wild, okay? In verse 10, it says, <clears throat> Excuse me, you've devised shame. You've, that sounds intentional to me. Okay, you've devised shame. So we don't kill you know, people in building our home, but we kill something, I believe. I read this, I think, from a guy named Dan Allender. And if not, then someone else gets the credit. But he said, every time we make a decision, we kill something. The suffix side, right, it means to kill, put to death. Suicide, homicide, Decide. Alright? Every time you make a decision to do one thing, you make a decision not to do something else. That's why making decisions are so tough. You're going to kill something that you maybe should have done or could have done, whatever. And so anytime we decide to build our home on something other than faith, because that's what you've done if you haven't decided to build it on faith. Anytime you do that, you're setting yourself up for danger. And you rely, if you rely on your own work, it will fail shamefully. Jesus said it this way in Matthew seven twenty six: Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And what happens to the house on the sand when the storm comes? When God decides to put you in a trial that you didn't expect or like or want? When you as a couple in our church has just found out, find the news that you have cancer, what's going to happen when that storm hits? Are you going to survive? Because when a storm comes and it's built on the sand, people are filled with fear. And when sin, not even just terrible suffering, but when sin comes into your life and it falls, your house is now filled with shame because your security wasn't in God. So it will either fall in shame, it says, or it will stand, withstand the storm. And the question is, what legacy are you going to leave? That's stanza two. Go from self to home. Stanza three. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, it's not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This goes into what I believe is supposed to be our joy in work that was destroyed in sin. So we often work without faith and build without faith. Work was supposed to be a part of God's creation before the fall. It was. God gave us jobs to do, to build, to grow, and to to do things. And mankind was given the responsibility to build a, a, a world that was glorifying to God. But at the fall, work became difficult, and it even became undesirable. Or even if men began to build, they often do so for the glory of themselves, for their own success or, or their own survival. And back in the beginning of Genesis, you maybe remember the Tower of Babel, well, it was Babylon. And God condemned the city and and confounded their languages because they were building a city that was glorifying to man and not glorifying to God. And it's clear by even that story that people can find success. You can actually build and create something apart from the glory of God. You've seen all kinds of things like that happen. It's possible to build an organization, whatever it happens to be, with lots of members and lots of momentum, without faith. It's possible to build a career and be very successful without faith. It's possible to build a church. This is what hit me. It's very possible to build a church, to gather people, to worship God without faith. I've seen it. And the way it happens is you begin to compromise, I believe, what is right for what is convenient. And you give people what they want, not necessarily what the Bible says that they need. And you work according to the values of the culture, not what I think are the countercultural values of Christ. In other words, things can get big without God. They can. Our church used to be 13 people. I don't know how big it is now, but it's more than 13. And it's very easy for us to begin to go, well, we just need to build more and grow more and do all these things and forget what is most important, which is if we're not glorifying God, it's all for naught. What's the point? If we don't preach the Bible but we have lots of fun, what's the point? Anyone can stick out a bottle for gerbils to gather around. It's not difficult. You just got to have a cool-looking bottle and some tasty water. Okay, But when you give them a little you know, disgusting pebble, pellets that they are supposed to eat to keep them healthy, people go, well, I don't know about that. Right? The judgment, God says in this verses 12 through 14, is that any form of building apart from faith will never have lasting substance. And more importantly, this is more important, it will not please God doesn't matter how big it is. It won't please God. doesn't matter how successful you are. It won't please God. If you are not dedicated to building to the glory of God, because when you build to the glory of God, you might actually do things that some people stand back and go, well, I wouldn't do that. That's stupid. But what is stupid or foolish, in biblical terms, to the world, might be the most glorifying thing that you could possibly do. There's a difference between building with faith and not building with it. And the truth is, your building may grow, it may succeed, but if it's not a conduit for the glory of God, it will be crushed by the glory of God. God will be glorified either way. And because God is the one that gives us both the ability and the opportunity to build, you are only successful, you are only educated, you only think the way you do, you've only had the luck, if that's what you call it, that you had because God is gracious, even to those who don't love Him. But all the work is intended to, supposed to glorify God. And when men boast in their own success, or rely on their own ability, they begin to believe that they don't need God. And God will judge that, if not now, in eternity. And apart from faith, apart from faith, our work may be considered good in the eyes of the world, but it will never be glorifying to God because you believe that you are doing it. Here's a verse that you probably have heard the first half of and maybe not the second. Ephesians 2, verse 8-10 through 10 says, for by, the, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing, your own salvation. God's idea, God's plan, God's work. It is a gift of God not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Verse 10, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, yeah, I'm going to do good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. God has given us work to do and allowed us to do it, and we are to build to His glory, not our own, because it's all His idea. 4. Woe to him, verse 15, who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and you make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The fact that you are not God's people. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you as will the destruction of the beast that terrified them for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. So sin destroys our relationship with ourselves and our families and our ability to work. And it also destroys our relationship with creation altogether. But we still use creation oftentimes without faith. The Babylonians were a people of complete corruption and perversion and all of their relationships were self-serving. People, as one of those creations. That's what people are. People in all of creation were tools used for entertainment. And not only did they literally, because you read it in Daniel chapter 5, I believe, when they actually fall, they're in the middle of a drunken party. Okay? And the hand comes right on the wall. You've probably heard that story. It says, by the way, you're condemned now. They're all drunk. And God actually says, this is one of the reasons why you're being condemned. Not because you're drinking, because you are dishonoring me, and you're idolatrous. But not only did they throw big drunken parties and probably dance all weird, nasty ways, they abused, nothing wrong with dancing, I just think it's stupid, but they abused. <laughs> Sorry, you know, I was the guy that sat there and, you want to dance? Heck no, I don't know why I'm here. I'm here because that's what we're supposed to be, I guess, Anyway. But they abused, and you see in the verses, they abused the environment. They ravished the forests of Lebanon and they slaughtered animals. Now, I'm not some, you know, environmental nut. But there's a, we go to such extremes. You're like, I'm either going to you know, ignore environment altogether, I don't care if I recycle, or I'm going to worship it. We're supposed to be stewards. So we do have a responsibility. But they ravished all of creation. Slaughtering animals. They abuse their relationship with nature, the relationship with alcohol, the relationship with sex, the relationship with all of creation centered on the pursuit of self glory. Sounds like a good red blooded American. Really. And we do exactly the same. We take the good things that God has given us. And all things are good beer, a good thing. But it's been abused. It has been abused. Women, great thing. Been abused. Work, great thing. Been abused and worshipped. All these things that God has given us, we have perverted. The sin in us has perverted. The thing itself is not bad. But the sin takes whatever is good. You can take anything that's good. Think of the most you know, the most wonderful thing. Guarantee a sin can pervert it in some way. And cause you to indulge in it in a way that's dishonoring to God. We have been given creation to steward And not to use and abuse for our own pleasure. And those who live by faith, in contrast to those who are faithless, think that way. They are supposed to act differently. They are supposed to spend differently. They are supposed to use, eat, and drink differently. They're supposed to conserve differently. Interact with people differently. And I'm not talking about legalism. Like a list of things, these are what Christians do and what Christians don't do. What I'm talking about is as you go into the world and you look at creation, you use creation, you ask yourself, how can I honor God here? 1 Corinthians 10.31, I love the verse, and we really dismiss it, I think. It says, whether you eat or drink, which is as basic as you can get. I mean, I can think of a couple things a little more basic, but that's about it, right? Eating and drinking. Whether you eat or drink, which is encompassing anything you do, do all, which that really does, all to the glory of God. Which means there is a way to not glorify God in how you eat and drink. There is a way to do that. We find those ways pretty easily. I think the things we struggle with is, how do I glorify God here? And so there is a judgment. He says, you will feel shame, again, from the Lord's wrath those who do not honor God as God, those who don't see themselves as stewards will eventually abuse creation as the Babylonians did. And the judgment is a strong-handed, you-know-what slap of God's wrath. That's what he says. He said, bringing the cup around, wah And God's wrath is really interesting because instead of being admired, he says the wicked are going to be ridiculed and they're going to be overwhelmed with shame. And... Sometimes that happens because God's active wrath, I think he just he punishes directly, but sometimes, and I think maybe more often, he lets you go. And he lets you indulge. And because, like a good father, not stopping his son from doing things he knows is gonna hurt him, that's wrathful. You want that? Take it and let it consume you and enslave you. The pursuit of of that lust, whatever it is, will result in disgrace. You can ask anyone who's had an addiction and brought that into their family and to ask them how that worked out for them. The disgrace that they brought because of their pursuit of their passion that God let them have. And this is obvious in our culture. You see it all the time now with you know, celebrities and the, quote, beautiful people that are messing up their lives. They have everything they could ever want. And they even, like some of the, um, people today can be famous for doing nothing but sinning. I mean, that's what makes them famous. Some of these uh, reality TV stars and people that do freaky stuff on YouTube, suddenly they're famous for the most disgusting things. And you know what? Eventually, they will feel and you begin to see it like one guy playing golf right now. Shame and brokenness. And I pray that that shame and brokenness will cause them to repent. But it doesn't often do that. Last stanza. Verse 18. What profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies. For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake to a silent stone arise can this teach behold it is overlaid with gold and silver and there's no breath in it at all, at all in it but the lord is in his holy temple and let all the earth including you habakkuk keep silence before him ultimately sin has destroyed yes ourselves our relationships with others, our relationship with creation and our work and responsibilities, but it has ultimately destroyed our relationship with God. But clearly, men still try to build spirituality without faith in God. The one true God. Both the Babylonians and us are guilty always of breaking the first commandment to have no other gods before me before we break anything else. We worship other gods. And it's been said in our world today that we are more spiritual of a culture than we've ever been. But what's also been observed, very obviously, is that we are more corrupt than we have ever been. How does that work? It's called idolatry. That's how it works. Spirituality not submitted to the one true God, Jesus Himself. And so as you look at the sin of our world, it honestly, it probably makes a lot of what Habakkuk saw pale in comparison. And not much has changed without question. And everyone agrees that things should be different, that people should be living differently, that those especially who confess Jesus as their Lord should be living differently. And there's some of us that look out and go, where are you, God? Just like Habakkuk. Look at all this brokenness, all this fake spirituality. And God here tells Habakkuk the core problem is idolatry. Everyone has, I believe, a trophy room full of idols. And everyone has one big idol that kind of takes a prominent position in that room with lights on it and stuff. And it's kind of carved into the room, right? Right? And we like to focus on that one, but if you were to dim the lights on that one, you light the lights everywhere else. You see, we have all kinds of idols, 31, one for each day of the month. We are idolatrous. We are, as Calvin said, our hearts are idol factories. And God tells Habakkuk, not only is that the core of the issue, but be silent. Stop complaining. Stop doubting. I know about the sin, and it's all going to be judged. And He's not indifferent to what's going on. He is control and He says, My glory is going to fill all things. And the faithful will trust in God to make them right. Will trust in God to make them right. doesn't mean you never participate in politics and, or you never do anything to, to honor God in just active service, but it is to trust that God will make things right and has set things right. The unfaithful... Those who don't believe will always put faith in their own work. And that will many times hurt others. There will be, I think, three kinds of responses to God's taunt song. One who says, I can fix myself. That will be one response. I'm just going to you know, pull myself up my bootstraps and work harder to be a good person. Another will say, I don't need to be fixed. I don't, I'm not broken. And there will be a few who will admit, as humbling as it is, I can't fix myself. And the problem is revealed in verse, I think, 14 of the same chapter, that the world, the problem is, is not filled with the glory of God. And you can't get that at a store. You can't bring the glory of God through politics that has to come from within. The evil in our lives, very similar to the Babylonians, is not a result of a problem outside of us. It is on the inside, it's an internal, internal condition of the heart. And the faithless, the faithless, those who do not trust God, those who take that path, either say I can fix myself or I'm pretty good. I'm not that bad. But the Bible teaches that without faith, it is impossible to please God. Just sit on that. Without faith, without trust in what God has done and is doing and will do, it's impossible to please God. Any amount of work to fix yourself, or denial that you don't need fixing will only lead you to be a really prideful puffy. That's what you'll end up being. And it'll start with yourself. And it'll bleed in your home. Where you tell your kids, Come on, work harder. You can do it. And you don't lead them to faith in Christ. And power in the Holy Spirit. We don't need to be reformed. I don't need to be reformed into Sam version 2.0. Okay? What has to happen is that I need to be transformed into Jesus 1.0, the original. And we need to become new creations, not just a better me. That's impossible. A better you will result in pride or despair. So this is what Jesus offers, and we'll close with this verse, 2 Corinthians 5.17. Here's the response to the taunt song I hope that we have. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And all this, I love this phrase, all this is from God. You can't fix yourself. That's humbling and beautiful and hopeful. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to Himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses or sins against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making His appeal through us. And we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God who does it all for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of god the anti puffy if you will this is what jesus offers to us and this is ultimately what we the only thing we have to offer to others we don't as a church have a list of here's the good things you should do doesn't exist the only work we have faith in Christ, and it's not even a work, it's a gift. I pray that we hear God's taunt song and think less about singing it to others, and more about listening to it as a sober reminder to ourselves. And it will move us to proclaim and live by faith in all things to the glory of God so that as we live in this world, as they see our lives, as they see our homes, as they see how we work, as they see how we worship, without us even saying anything, they go, Why? Why do you have such hope? You have cancer. I have to tell this story, although I didn't ask permission. I'll use different names. Bob and Tina. There's a couple that came to our church, and many of you already know. They came to our church two years ago. First sermon I preached, they came up afterwards and said, I learned more in that sermon in the last five years than I ever had. And that was nothing about the sermon. It was more about where they were in their faith. In the last two years, they grew incredibly. And they've served, and we've loved them. And last Monday, uh, Tina was um, diagnosed with cancer, bone cancer. Tuesday we had a theology study for the men who gather. And we were on the providence of God. And Bob, the husband, is sitting right next to me. I was blown away that he was even there. And I, we were talking about the providence of God, and I was like, hmm, what am I going to do? Because I had some very serious questions to ask, questions that Habakkuk wanted to ask about evil and God's relationship to it. And so I simply said, All right, we started talking, and I asked some hard stuff, and I said, well, would God give you a terminal illness? People kind of stopped. Bob didn't say anything. I said, would God give you something as painful as that? Would he ordain it, permit it, allow it? Use whatever word you want. So we dialogued about that, and I didn't know exactly where Bob was. He was pretty quiet. And so everyone, after a couple hours, we left after talking about that, and I turned to Bob and said, How are you? And he was obviously very um, emotional. And he said that he was doing okay and and, uh, asked how his bride was. And he started to get tears in his eyes. And he said, she's so strong. And I said, yeah. And uh, here's what she said. She said that... um, When she was diagnosed, she didn't want to tell him at first. And eventually they talked and they wept together on Monday. And then she said this. I just want God to be glorified. And I just started bawling. And we prayed together. And it was beautiful. Do I understand that fully? No. That's an act of God. And I'll walk with them and I'll hug them and I'll point them towards the glory of God. But that's a life of faith. A life where you take your faith and you come in and you go, when hard crud happens, what's going to happen, really? My prayer is that you will trust God despite what you see as a life of faith. And that will be next week's song. It's beautiful. But the other half of that is the anger and all the other things that could come and I pray that it doesn't. I'm going to pray. Father God, we give You glory for who You are, for the mystery that is You, for the ways that You work that in our eyes, Father, are unbelievable. For the things that emotionally I don't get, for intellectually I don't understand, I pray that I will stand on the foundation that is You and who I know You to be. Let me hear this taunt song, God, of a life that lacks faith, a life that will be ultimately full of shame, that will ultimately be full of despair because they have nothing but this world. But a life of faith, Lord, You intend for us to glorify You in all things, for better or for worse. Help us to trust You. Help our unbelief. May the glory of Jesus be made manifest whether I eat or I drink whether I suffer or prosper Amen